0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. What's up, everyone? Thanks so much for tuning in to the weekend edition of the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Recently, Mike Green of Simplify Asset Management joined Alex Gurvich on Real Visionaries to argue that the alternative to the Fed's decision to provide liquidity to markets and facilitate the recovery of asset prices could have been worse. Check it out. Part of the thing that, that has been so, so apparent in the 2020 market, the 2020 to 2022 market, and we've seen it with everything from you know, the ARC funds dynamic to Bitcoin to stock markets, and that's this dynamic that flows matter, right? Um, in, a, in an environment, and again, my arguments around passive play a role here, but in an environment in which a disproportionate component of the market effectively doesn't do anything, the behavior of those who remains becomes more extreme. right? The market becomes more inelastic is as, as the economic term in terms of its behavior on an increase in supply and demand. And to me, it didn't matter who was elected. What we knew going into it was that people were understandably concerned and exactly as you described, uncertain on how to trade it. And if you're uncertain on how to trade it, the default position should be cash. Right. So the minute your default position is cash and you're aware that people are beginning to raise cash, dispute resolution, unless like an asteroid hits the earth sort of thing, like, you know, then I think we can pretty much agree that like that's a worse outcome. But barring a you know election night um attack of aliens or you know asteroid hitting the earth you knew people had to put money back to work right and so that that they, you know that felt very clear to me and it literally was exactly the same behavior that we saw in in 2016 and i think a lot of the behavior that we're seeing by and large is similar right i mean we're encountering an environment where oil prices are mid 80s and everyone has a narrative for why oil prices are going dramatically higher. Functionally the same narrative that existed in the fourth quarter of 2018, roughly two years after you know the debacle in January, February 2016 when everyone was convinced that China was going to fall apart, right And that, that was the end of, of you know the demand for oil under that framework. So it, it there there's remarkable symmetry that seems to be playing out, you know, over the past couple of market cycles. That I mean, we'll see if it continues to hold. But perversely, that's that's the way it feels to me. Well, it is interesting. This is this is a good segue to start going forward into market outlook and just to jump ahead. I do begin to see similarities between 2018 and today. Yeah. Which it seems to be a little too soon to be at the same place of the cycle. And we, we can both elaborate on this a little bit. But just to lead you towards this, um the current outlook, anything you took out of pandemic uh, in terms of like your perception of the market, what you've learned, what kind of the framework you built after the pandemic, is it in any way different from your pre-pandemic framework? And if you wish, you can take straight into your current market perception, if you wish, or and like your understanding of the events of 2021 and uh, how you basically frame your current view of the markets in that light? Um For me, the biggest thing that came out of the pandemic, um, I mean, as I said, there, there's two aspects to it. There's the social aspect, which just has me very frustrated and very angry that as a society, we enabled ourselves to be what I would describe as manipulated into very poor decision making. And I think our children are going to bear the costs associated with this, the debacle that has hit the educational experience. um, We're going to be carrying the societal costs of that for a very long time. Um, The second thing that I I would suggest is that um, broadly, the Fed got this one right. And I know that people are going to start screaming at their screen the minute I say that, but the alternative was so much worse that we had not provided liquidity to markets, that we had not facilitated the um, rise in asset prices or recovery in asset prices and the liquidity associated with it. Had we chosen not to do that and still continued the ridiculous policies that we engendered, um i just i can't even begin to imagine how bad the outcomes would have been right i mean true great depression sort of stuff and perversely we actually see that in many developing areas around the world right i mean if you look at areas that didn't have the fiscal flexibility that the united states had they're running way behind you know germany is experiencing runaway inflation of you know 20 plus percent in producer prices today they're much more closely tied to you know the the dynamic of oil prices because of their industrial exports but nobody has a a perfect solution to events like what's transpired and so it, it feels to me that from a societal standpoint like we're just really angry about something the fed did that was actually pretty good and we're still trying to reconcile our individual roles in terms of the societal response of Locking our kids down, restricting their access to social interaction, um, establishing them, you know, their own fear of their classmates, their friends, themselves as vectors of disease in a society as compared to thinking of themselves as resources that should be celebrated and rewarded. You know, that sort of stuff just. I, I, I still haven't resolved that internally on, on an intellectual basis. I don't know where we're going to come out of that. On the market side, to me, the clear takeaway is this rising inelasticity dynamic that you've heard me talk about over and over and over again, where the participants become much less valuation sensitive. And you know if you're not prepared to sell things when prices go higher. And you're not prepared to buy things when prices go lower, then the idea of mean reversion within markets starts to break down. And I would argue we've actually seen this paradoxically on both sides: the rally upwards in commodity-oriented names, um, you know, uh, many forms of commodities themselves, um, the behavior of you know high tech unprofitable companies that benefited from inflows into strategies like Kathy Woods Arc, the extraordinary move to you know 100 times revenues sort of EV to sales sort of frameworks. And now as that stuff is being sold off I'm, I'm experiencing the exact same dynamics that I saw in the 2000 to 2002 time period where there's just no bid for this stuff. Right. I mean, you know, somebody made the joke today with Peloton, which is, you know, crashing as they are predictably saying there is no further demand for our bicycles. We have to stop manufacturing bicycles or we're going to build up the mother of all inventory bubbles in Peloton bicycles. And by the way, like everybody else figured out, okay, we can make network connect bicycles as well and let Peloton just sell the software, but that's going to lead to a compression of revenues and everything else. This is just so eminently predictable. And you, know, you, you the idea that it wasn't apparent is just absurd to me, but we know why it happened. It happened because of price insensitive buyers and flows. And it, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that increasingly people are, are recognizing this, and yet breaking those habits is still really hard. Right, somebody made the observation: if you loved Peloton at you know 126, you're going to love it at 26, right? Um, not necessarily, right? But why did you love it there? It's unwound almost everything. Um, at the same time, people are now looking at the Kathy Wood stuff, and they're like, "There's never going to be any demand for these products. There's never going to be any demand for these stocks. They're never going to stop going down." That feels a little lazy. Um, and so, you know, the characteristic of a market that is near all time highs, but has seen a giant number of stocks probing all time, you know, probing lows or facing significant distress. It's an interesting wrinkle that can really only be explained by the, some of the theories I've talked about with flows. Real Vision subscribers can always access this full Real Visionaries episode on our plus tier over at realvision.com.